Thanks for tuning in to part two of a very special live episode of 2233. Again, this was the first time we ever attempted a live episode. Each episode features three stories from incredible women who were in Washington, D.C. as part of the prestigious Women, Peace, and Security Program, hosted by the International Visitor Leadership Program, or IVLP. A quick apology at the top. We considered ourselves so lucky to hear these amazing stories of courage and strength, but unfortunately, the sound quality is not always what you are used to, and of course not what we would have wished. I apologize for this, but it's worth it. There was no way that we were going to leave these stories on the shelf. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. This week, how one earns the nickname The Fighter in Cameroon, taking grassroots inspiration all the way to Parliament in Peru, and giving up all your time to empower others in Libya. Join us on three journeys of courage and inspiration. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And Oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. From downtown Washington, D.C., you are listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. I'm Christopher Wurst, director of the Collaboratory an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, a statute that created ECA. Our stories come for participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. On today's unique and very special episode of 2233, we'll hear from six courageous and inspiring women from every region of the world. They're in the United States participating in the Women, Peace, and Security Program under the auspices of ECA's International Visitors Leadership Program, or IVLP. Over the course of three weeks, the IVLP participants will examine how women leaders and organizations in the United States actively engage in mediating conflicts and disputes arising from political, socioeconomic, ethnic, religious, and regional differences. In addition, they will explore strategies for directing positive political, social, and economic change in a democratic society. A quick word about 2233. We in ECA believe that international exchange programs are transformative in people's lives not only the participants, but those they meet along their journey. We also believe in the power of human stories. So our goal is to reflect the profound impact of ECA exchanges, one powerful story at a time. Today, we are truly privileged to hear six such stories. 
Salim Bumien from Cameroon. I'm a social advocate and I am a, the general coordinator of a, a coalition of women-led organizations that came together to fight the crisis that is to contribute in solving the crisis that exists in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon. Cameroon is not very peculiar because it's a common norm for African countries. What is happening in Cameroon is normal within African countries that have a crisis. And I would not want to start with the crisis because it is the end product of what has been going on. We have situations of inequalities that stems from governance, that stems from policies that discriminate. There is marginalization, there is poverty, and the normal barriers that are cultural and sociocultural barriers that limit or press down some parts of the population. So all of that leads to a lot of disgruntledness. And at the moment, because of um, our historical lineage, there is high tension in Cameroon, and there is an armed conflict. And when I talk there is an armed conflict, you understand how difficult it is because we are now talking of internally displaced people, we are talking about refugees, we are talking about um, women who are now having orphans to take care of, living in bushes, struggling to feed, the caregiving level has increased. That's the picture of Cameroon, which is not different from other African countries. Some people who know me call me Salim Bumien the fighter, probably because um, I'm a lone daughter. I grew up with my brothers. And in a typical African context, my mother will serve us food in a tray. And you eat. Eat what you can. So it was a question of surviving. And when you live in that setup, my brothers would decide the kind of play we will play. They would decide everything. I became a very faithful follower. But at some point I said, no, wait a minute. I also have an identity that I need to uphold. So from there, within a polygamous setup with so many children, you are a girl, we are on special needs, the boys feel they can do anything. I started marking my way to getting what I want. So I moved on my adolescent life, brought its own challenges where I had some setbacks because of bisexuality. I almost did not complete education. I went on to be a teacher, and I discovered the girls within our schools were still going through what I was going through. So I decided, oh, it's time to come up and talk for the women. So I became a mentor in girls' clubs. Later on, I created my own organization, Common Action for Gender Development, Comagen, where I gave the girls opportunity to talk. So I realized the more you have the safe spaces for these girls, the better for them. So we were discussing the taboo issues of the community, things that the community will not want us to talk about, especially sex. Women in Africa, you do not have a sex life, just forget it. But within these clubs, we were talking about these issues. So walking in that light, I could give them education, tell them where to see some services, and walking towards um, touching the policy. Then came the crisis. Now, these girls that I worked with were in the rural communities, and the crisis in Cameroon is intense within the rural communities because the fighters need the bushes and all to hide and do their hidden run. So you get phone calls, oh, we are sorry, last night we didn't sleep in the house, we are in the bushes, and all of that. I started by responding through humanitarian aid, but I knew that that was not all. Because we're only responding. What happens to the problem that is causing all of these? 
So um, the general coordination, uh, coordinator whom I succeeded came with the idea of creating a coalition of women-led organizations because we were responding to the humanitarian needs of the people, but we realized we had to go above the humanitarian needs to touching the cause of the problem. I must confess, at that point, Resolution 1325 was not very popular, and personally, it was of no interest to me. So we started. We realized nobody cared. When you listen to the A faction, it's power. When you listen to B, it's proving that I am the tough guy. And there is nobody really caring what a woman has eaten, what a woman is saying. So we decided to come together as women and we started advocacy. So that is how I found myself into leadership because I realized I was choking. There was a lot that I had to contribute to what is going on. But who gave you the space? So we, de we decided to use the coalition to create a space and we started making the noise, even when nobody cared to listen we spoke, and I was the regional coordinator then for the Northwest. So we decided to say, okay, you will be saying what you want to say. We are also telling you the issues of women. So from there, we started engaging the women within the rural communities to see how they can come on board to talk about these issues within the crisis and there to get into proposing solutions on how the conflicts can be resolved. I use the word there. Because it took us time to make people understand that we have something to say. We had lamentation campaigns that I led within the region, and the coordinator for Southwest also did that. We were threatened. I had to come to the United States sometime in March this year to attend the Congress for the known state armed groups here, leaders who had a conference in Maryland. Just to talk to them, I was almost beaten up in a hall because they asked, what do you have to say? I said, I have a lot to say. <laughs> Discuss your politics for all I care, but remember women and children are dying. And in your leadership, I'm yet to see a woman, which means you don't know what we are going through. So it is that fighting that I said, this darkness cannot cover me. Other women and I, we're going to push it and get it done. I love that you say you were making noise even when people weren't there to listen in the beginning. Um, was there a moment, because you were going up against the current, you were going the wrong way and against the current, the current was wrong, but you were facing that. Was there a moment when you said, well, maybe we can have a positive effect. Maybe we can do this. Personally, and I think my other sisters too are leaders, are the frontline defenders, they can attest to that. I thought we had relevance when I started getting attacks. Because I realized at some point on social media, my pictures were everywhere, cross on my face, my forehead. They call my children, threaten them, call my mom, threaten her, threaten everybody. I told myself, oh, the noise is relevant. I am going to continue. I will not stop. I'm going to continue. So and at that point, sometimes it's really frustrating. It is lonely and cold.
Because as women leaders, conflict is never prepared for. It just comes, and you have to respond to it. So at this point, there were, we felt like, oh, we don't have the technical expertise. We do not have the resources. We do not have the connections, the allies to join us on this. But we had the most powerful thing. That was the willingness to contribute in any that crisis. That's why we started with what we got and started sources for what we do not have. We started with the natural phenomenon of our tears. If you see me, those who have been noticing me around here, I'm always with this color orange and something black. That is our advocacy. We made it a point of duty of just dressing like that all the time. And if somebody notices that and asks you, say, okay, I'm advocating for peace to return in Cameroon. That's why everywhere I am, I tell people, if you want to support the cause of the women in Cameroon, put on black and orange, send us a pic, we'll put on our website, and we'll see how we gather the momentum. Like many other African women in leadership, we should understand that when a woman in Africa stands up, to fight, especially in armed conflict, she's up against not just the conflict, but the cultural barriers that there is, the government that has its own way to look at it, the other faction, the opinion holders within the conflict, they consider you a straight up enemy because a peace builder is a bigger enemy to those who fan violence. These same women are people who have the will and need all the support they can get. So sometimes it is very lonely. You really sit and ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Is this worth doing? Especially when your children and your family become a target or when your mother calls you like my mom did two weeks ago and said, my daughter, please stop. I will lose you. I am tired of all of this. I cried. Because it's like I was seeing something. She was seeing a daughter going, but I was seeing myself leading something that is my passion and something that is like an assignment that I cannot put down. So I just needed to talk to her. But what is sometimes very rewarding is the recognition that a program like this gives to fighters because at some point you say, oh, somebody sees it right and is giving me the technical know-how to move on. So that will is always there, but the desire for support is always there also. We need to blend it. This is the last um, question I have, if you could briefly tell me um, what you want your daughter when she's your age. Um, tell me about the Cameroon that you hope that she's living in. Talking about my daughters, I want them to come into a Cameroon where the stakes have changed, the understanding of what equality can do to develop men is very clear, and the right positioning for women has been done because we suffer a lot as women leaders because we do not have the best positioning. We have all the legal frameworks that it takes, 
but we do not have the positioning that is needed to push these legal frameworks to work in our favor. So I hope that's one of the programs I hold dear in my heart, and I pray I have people who subscribe to that view to help me train girls in Africa to get interested in political leadership because it is the power of the pen that makes the difference. It's not all the noise that you make around, but I, one of the panelists in the morning told us about um, what Hillary Clinton did as a secretary of state when she announced about uh, Resolution 1325 that they were going to have a national plan, uh, action plan in America. That was the power of the pen. So I am dreaming of a society in Africa, in Cameroon in particular, for my daughters, where us, leaders of today, would have created the position in that they need, so that when they advocate, build their legal frameworks, their policies pass with a snap of the finger. That would give a better Africa. Thank you very much. Sally, the fighter. Thank you. Muy bien. Bueno, I'm going to speak in Spanish. This is here for me. Uh, well, I'm Silvia Adriansen Quintana. I actually represent the Women Parliamentarians Caucus in the Congress of Peru. Uh, there are 39 women who work in Congress out of 130 Congress people. We took a break about a month ago, that's how we're going to call it, because of uh, political reasons. So I am here because of that. I was invited just two weeks before the program started. And um, thank you so much. Can you talk a little bit about um, you alluded to some challenges. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you face in Peru? Well, in spite of the fact that we have uh, certain freedoms, there is respect towards the Constitution in general, there are some cir circumstances that worry me, and they are very similar all throughout our countries. The polarization that we have, we have the left, we have the right, and I think we need to be in the middle. I think we have to focus on common objectives so that we can advance. Something else that's important to mention, and we have different areas in Peru. We have the rural areas. We have the urban areas. We have to work with self-esteem. We have to understand that we are human beings with values, with potential. And I think we have a whole history throughout our continent. But I think it's something that is also seen uh, in the rest of the world. I think that also education is paramount because Without education, we don't understand why we have different interests or why sometimes education is more focused on creating us all according to the same shape, like cookie cutters. And we are all different. We have our own identity. We have our own personal interests. And it's not just about math, social sciences, and that's it. 
you know, it's not about becoming accountants and lawyers. We have to open up and we have to really accept the different intelligence that we all have and the different identities that we all have. And I have seen things like that in Europe and the Middle East and, and the United States. I think, I think things are changing, but it's changing slowly. Something else that I think is happening in our country is at an economic level. And I, uh, I have been an entrepreneur as well for a long time. And I think that there's a huge potential in all of the countries, and that's with like small businesses and entrepreneurs. 90% of the people who work in Peru are entrepreneurs, and that's why our economy works. However, the reality is that we don't have any support in the sense that, yes, there are certain programs for innovation, and uh, it's very average. Uh, there, uh, we're not really covering or meeting all our needs. We need entrepreneurs to be vital and to move forward. They are a constant engine. Those are the small business people, the small entrepreneurs, and that applies all over the world and, and throughout every different level. I think we have a lot to do. There's a huge potential in Peru. We are considered one of the best entrepreneurial countries. We have great food, great cuisine. We have great tourism as you might know. But yes, we have a lot to do. What was your story to get to where you become one of the most powerful leading women in your country? Uh, and when, at what point in your life did you know that that was the course that you were on? In this case, I would like to tell you a little bit about my personal story. And I think that um, you might find many commonalities with your own stories. And I can tell you how I discovered my own potential. When I was little, very little, I would observe people. And I would ask my father, well, dad, why aren't we all equal? Because I felt that we should all be equal. And I felt that not all of us had access to the same things. And he would tell me, no, we are not all equal. And I was very disillusioned by that because I felt that we all needed to have the same opportunities. And it, there was injustice. And there was this sense of not being able to understand why we couldn't have access to the same things not only in the physical sense, like a structure or actually material things, but also referring to education. And that made a huge difference. I had some issues with my family because I always wanted to gift things away. I loved giving things away to people. And people would just joke around and they were telling me, you're going to become really poor. You're going to live up in the hills, like in a farm. Because I really felt that I wanted to give everything away. I wasn't really focusing on having money or an income. That wasn't what I was interested in. So when I grew up, I started developing uh, educational programs, games. Actually, I have 20 years in creating innovative and educational games focused on developing math, science, communications, but also in developing citizens. So also, on the other hand, just because I worked in the social area, Chris, what I did was that I started working as a volunteer in jails. For 10 years, I worked in jails, and we would actually have classes for children about values, self-esteem, identity, and we worked on life projects for children, and I did that in jails for about 10 years in Lima. I was really impressed. We would do it in the yard, and in spite of the environment, 
environment, um, it's already a difficult environment, the fathers who were in jail, they would come and they would say, I want to also listen to what you're saying because they felt accepted. And I learned that changed me. And I confirmed that we are all equal. Yes, there are people in jail who made mistakes, who um, screwed up, but those are human beings with emotions and they just took bad decisions. They made poor decisions. So I would actually have games that I would play with these kids and their fathers. And there are two things that really uh, made me uh, be who I am today. I actually created games so that children could learn to read. I wanted to learn and see if the games were actually effective. In Peru, we have a very multicultural country. We have over 50 languages. And I wanted to confirm that the games were actually working in different areas. That was in Lima, Arequipo, and Itos. I mean, there's a lot of jungle in those areas. And so I got to see a different reality, and that changed my life. I met teachers, parents, children, and I got to see the reality and the true needs these areas had. And uh, with just a little game, you would actually be able to change the life of all these people, these teachers' life. And that actually really changed me forever. And I realized that, you know, the reality in Lima was very different from the reality in other areas. So in the capital, things are very different from the rural areas. And let's refer again to potential. We all have potential. And also, when it comes to the jails, we held a prevention, a crime prevention program at the jails so that we could avoid violence in areas that were far away from Lima. And we had some people who had been exiled from Cuba, and there's an area that's called the Cuban neighborhood. And a woman from there, she was eight years, eight years old at the time, that was like about 15 years ago or so. But that woman, that girl, she was perseverant in spite of the fact that her mom sold drugs, her brother sold drugs, and her father pretty much ignored everything that was happening. There was this process of teaching them identity, self-esteem, and we helped them develop this uh, life uh, project. And she decided she wanted to become a flight attendant. And when she made that choice, she was very passionate. And she had difficulty. She had, a, he, she had some difficult behaviors. She had a lot of problems at home. But she made that choice. And today, she's a flight attendant. And that also was important for me. Uh, that's when I realized that, yes, that people can change and you can affect change. Uh, it took her about 10 years. I mean, she was very young. But these are stories that really changed my life because I had this situation where I felt, well, I need money so that I can survive and support myself. I have to work. But then I had uh, what I was passionate about, the social uh, aspect. And I had an inner struggle inside me. I could hear my parents' voice in one end saying, how are you going to support yourself? What are you going to do with your life? And then I had the other voice, my own inner voice, telling me what I really wanted to do. And then I had the opportunity to join the Women Parliamentarians Caucus. Um, I had been invited before, but I hadn't um, accepted the invitation. And then when I did, I got to see a different context of all these women and people that you can actually help. And it was really incredible. I was able to learn about working with identity issues, with economic development, political development, obviously, because we really needed women to participate in politics. And we developed this special project that is called Woman, Awaken the Power Within. And we did that for a while. 
And just to be able to see women in different socioeconomical contexts and that they were actually responding to the same needs, that was important. A few days before I was invited to come here, a friend told me, but Sylvia, don't you realize that what you're doing is politics? This is a friend who's a journalist, and he sort of closed that gap for me. I finally understood that this was my calling, to be able to support people, help people, and many people. Then I received the invitation from the American Embassy, and I was really surprised, and I'm here today. <clears throat> That's amazing story. I'm curious, just briefly, um, because we're running out of time, how, because you're, you have such amazing ideas and such a great insight on how to connect with people at a very grassroots level, now that you are in a place that's dealing in a more bureaucratic, um, more traditional level, how are you able to continue to be innovative and have these ideas in, in an effective way? I think that the most important thing well, my own personal proposal is that every human being should be unique. We are all unique anyway when we were born, and sometimes we don't realize that. And my insight about this is that we need to work. And when it comes to women issues, we have to focus on women issues. Women have potential and they have intentions and perseverance, and not many people have that. And I think when we look at men and women, it's important. And what I see is that we need to keep working. And I think we shouldn't lean towards one side or the next. We have to work together as a group. Because what has happened before is that everyone has their own opinion and they have their own things that they want to do, but we don't have a common ground on that. We have seen that in Peru. My proposal and suggestion is that we have to find a common denominator and we have to work together. And with the new generations, we have to bring them on board and we have to work with them, give them a voice to the new generations. My own personal expectation is that the young generations have the response, the answer. They are going to change what is happening and we will be their mentors and their guides. And in, when it comes to personal development that has to be constant and that's something that is paramount thank you thank you so much my name is Hindle Arbi I'm from Libya uh, what I do actually I do a lot of things but mainly um, I work with the civil society local as an active as well as international organizations where I've been engaged since the revolution ended until this moment and slash a trainer uh, and different uh, different uh, trainings actually women empowerment uh, elections advocacy debates etc can you talk a little bit about the situation in Libya and the challenges that you're up against in these areas that you just talked about well, actually, the big challenge in Libya, when the, um, let's say, the activity within the civil society started in Libya, 
It's a comprehensive of the civil society work. Because back in the old regime, we used to have that stereotype kind of thing that um, civil society means charity only. And we have no law controlling the work of the civil society. So uh, people have that background that whomever works with international organization, he is an agent slash spy, uh, has a double standard, etc. So uh, that was one of the biggest challenges back home. I guess too many others will uh, share the same opinion, especially from the uh, Arabic world, that uh, that was the major change there. As well as uh, when you wanted to get engaged in the civil society, actually as a woman, you need to give up your social life. So it's one of the, the biggest challenges because you need to convince your family that you are doing good for the society. Yeah, sometimes it may, may be unpaid, unpaid role, but the outcome and the impact, it's, it's kind of a payment for myself. So that was one of the major chain, um, challenges I faced working with the civil society. So, so I'm going to do it again. I'm going to ask a different question than the one that's there. But I'm leading up to this question. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was um, that motivated you to want to do work in the civil society and knowing the challenges as a woman that you face doing that? Can you talk a little bit about how you got there? I'll start by being inspired from the countries that they were pioneer in the civil society work, such as Tunis and Egypt because they were really playing a, a very long uh, role. We used to have during the, uh, not the old regime, the regime that I, that I haven't been alive since then to, to the judge, but I've been told that there was a woman movement. Unfortunately, I've just knew about it after the revolution because we didn't have that access to those movements uh, because the archive had been destroyed. But I was like looking around and see why Libyan women cannot do the same. We are capable enough. Yeah, we may need to develop some skills, but we, we are there. We can exist and reflect a good image. Because through the media of the old regime, we've always been pictured as um, sub-Saharan or uneducated or man playing the first Role women are not in the scene at all, so I wanted to, uh, you know, to to show to the world that we we do exist. Yeah, I may not be at the first role, role but I can still exist by providing Libyans, Libyan women, with training and building up their capacity. I don't care if I've been in the front, middle, or the last uh, uh, last role, but there must be a fingerprint to be uh, done there for Libyan women to, to be shown in the, to the world. So that was uh, one of the motivation, actually. I've been motivated, motivated by Tunis, Egypt, because they are doing a great job. Can you tell a little bit um, the story of when you have felt the proudest about the work that you've been doing and what happened and what were the outcomes of that? Uh, there were two things I was really um, touched and really proud of myself because when I first joined the civil society work across the 
personal promise on myself that I would do whatever to help women in my country, as I said, to, uh, to shine and to, sh to show their, themselves in a very impressive way. And also to gain, actually, money for living, but to create that uh, balance between what to do and what not to do, and how to reach my target. I remember that day when I first funded the organization with the personal efforts of mine and with uh, another person who believed in education and culture to change the mentality, because actually uh, we've been facing issues with um, the stereotype thinking of the culture is just the music, dancing, and this is it, because I'm afraid this is reflect of the old regime uh, philosophy about uh, culture. So uh, remember that day when we launched that uh, organization and I've uh, been inviting friends and those who have uh, been active and stakeholders, etc. After all that hard work, after all that efforts, I've been paying sometimes money from my own to support uh, the events. Um, there were no donation because people were not really believing in what we were doing. So it was everything, personal efforts. I remember that day when we, when we launched the, uh, the work of the organization was unforgettable because um, I felt pe the people's feedback was really amazing. Yes, we wanted culture, we wanted cinema, we wanted to uh, play music, this is what we wanted. We've been waiting for too long to have such organization, such club hosting um, hosting such activities, and I was like, oh my God, there were a lot of people, because I thought they're only elite who are really attracted to that sector, but the outcome amazed me. And also I remember the second part of what I was interested in when I started working on women empowerment. Uh, back to, to work with international organization because that is international organization. That's why they hire local officers because they do understand more the culture and the need. I remember back then when my manager came out with 20 points or 20 listed training courses for official elected women within the municipality. And he was telling me that Hinda, because I was holding the woman file and youth as well, he said, Hinda, these are the objectives and these are the trainings and they're where we want to go. I said, excuse me, you got to be kidding me. And he was like looking at me and how dare you? I said, this is not realistic. We can't execute those trainings because the women within the municipalities came from background teachers, housewives, and they've been, you know, uh, elected according to the political parties, but they haven't been trained, they've just been pushed. Now you go, you need to work, and this is it. So I said to my manager, uh, are you looking forward for a long-term outcome, or you just wanted to, to reach the objectives? He said, well, this is a good question. Uh, what about both? You need to convince me. I said, okay. I remember that night, he'd been in the U.S., and I was back home. 
due to time difference, we were like ping-ponging with emails. And I wanted to sleep, but I was like, no, it's an issue, you want to fight for it. I tried to convince him, going back to the basic, let's say, case study. And I've, I've told him that these are housewives, teachers. They have no qualifications. How could you uh, ask them to be politicians where they know nothing about ethics and how to, uh, let's say, uh, perform in a public conferences, how to reflect their opinion. They need to be trained. He said, we don't provide soft skills. I said, okay then, why don't we call that training advocacy or debate? Then he said, okay, you win. We will change the philosophy of uh, the training, but we will stick to the objectives. It took us a while. It took me a while. Uh, as I said, I've given up uh, social life. I can't see even my family because I strongly believe in them. The way they were looking at me whenever we have a training sessions, I don't know. I felt like I'm going to rescue, rescue them. They were putting a lot, a lot, a lot of hope on what we are going to do. And by the outcome I gained out of that experience, it was very impressive. Yeah, there were still a little way to go, but at least um, they were trained. Thank God they were more uh, developed in their skills and they know more their rights and uh, they know how to fight uh, against a municipality that's full of men. And since I, um, I've left the, the place that I've been working there, but I still keep on tracking their news, what's, what they are up to. Now they have their own council. So it was really very, you know, touching that they reached what I planned for. Alhamdulillah, now they are doing a great job. And uh, some of them been now... Um, um, yeah, pulled out and some they are continuing to go for the other uh, election, which is, you know, when, you, when I step back, I say, okay, then part of my objective, I reached it. Now let's, let's think about something else in different sector where I'm engaged in entrepreneurship because politician, enough politician, we will go to economic um, empowerment. Uh, and uh, I'm just starting with the another uh, category where I, very soon I'll see the outcome. One last question um, before we wrap up, and it's the same one that I asked before. Um, as you meet people here in this, in this experience in the United States, what impression about your experiences and about your country do you hope to leave with them? I hope to leave an impression that Libya is uh, a beautiful country. People are very friendly and educated. They are not ignorant or just wealthy with the oil and this is it. No, there are a lot of potential there. And women are very uh, inspirational. They are keen and they are open to cooperate with different nationalities as well as um, we are open to cooperate with others in terms of exchanging experience and seeing what we can do in the future. Um, I just wanted to shed the light on something I shared with, uh, with uh, a very gorgeous lady yesterday when we talked together. I said, when I looked at that room yesterday and the, the first time I came over, 
I said, gosh, I wish that the world is that, one, that room because we, we deal with each other with full of love, full of respect, in spite of the difference in language, in spite of different of religion. I wish that the whole world and the politicians could learn from the woman, the leader woman here, to do the same thing. We would have been in better situation than what we are in now. Thank you. Thank you Thank very, you very, very much. much. Chris. Twenty two thirty three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the US State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Worst, I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. For more about the IVLP Women, Peace, and Security Program and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, leave us a nice review while you're at it, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. You can also now follow us on Instagram at 22.33 underscore stories. Special thanks to Sally, Sylvia, and Hend for sharing their stories. Thanks to our colleagues at IVLP, and thanks to all the Women, Peace, and Security participants for making so much beautiful noise during this program. Music heard at the top and throughout this episode was Quatrefoil by Poddington Bear, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. And then selfishly, I'm going to ask if I could get a picture uh, with everyone on stage so that I can show my grandchildren me with world leaders, because uh, I have no doubt. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs>